This episode of In Our Tracks is brought to you by Markel. Frank Constantini has a lifetime of horse experience, giving him a working knowledge of all breeds and disciplines, and he currently serves as Markel's Director of Western Disciplines. He's also held many roles within the National Reining Horse Association, the Reining Horse Foundation, and USET, ASHA, and he was the chair of the FEI Reining Committee. Markel has more than 50 years of expertise in ensuring horses, horse-related businesses, and farms and ranches. Markel has been an NRHA corporate partner since 1993 and is deeply committed to NRHA's members and the sport of reining. Visit Markel's website at www.markelhorseandfarm.com for more information. Welcome to Season 2 of In Our Tracks, a project from the National Reining Horse Association. I'm your host, Jennifer Paulson. We're here to honor the history of reining, discuss current events and trends, and look ahead at the opportunities this sport has in its future. Reining's rich heritage includes vibrant personalities we're excited to share with you, along with honoring the horses and events that have made this sport the international phenomenon it is today. If you like what you hear, please be sure to leave a review. And thank you for listening to In Our Tracks. Hey everybody, welcome to this episode of In Our Tracks, a project from the National Reining Horse Association. In this episode, we're really excited to welcome Frank Costatini. He's a member of the NRHA Hall of Fame. He's a two-time NRHA past president. He's owned major event winners, and he's a staunch supporter of reigning and NRHA. So welcome to the podcast, Frank. We're really happy to have you. Well, thank you, Jennifer. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, this episode is going to kind of go off of our, our normal format, just because Frank has so many great stories to share from his years in the reigning community. So we thought it would be fun to start by comparing and contrasting reigning kind of at its roots um, and then where it is today, because Frank has kind of been there for, for most of those years. So Frank, first of all, one thing that, that you and I have talked about is um, a big obvious difference is the footing and arena conditions and ability to ride at night um, at the horse shows. So today dirt work is a science and in the infancy of the sport, you know, dirt was dirt and there were rocks and it wasn't always the best footing for the sport. But tell us how you have seen that change um, in, our, in terms of our arena conditions and, and when we're allowed to ride and that sort of thing. Well, Jennifer, you know, in the beginning, it was um, kind of all hands on deck. You, you can look at some of the pictures of the first fraternity at the at the uh, fairgrounds in Columbus, and the uh, hockey game was played a couple of days before, and they had to get the ice melted in the arena and rake the, the ground and do whatever they did. Um, you know, as we progressed, it went from uh, a tan bark situation in most of the state fairs to uh, where we are today, where um, we have a... a a building that is built to house our dirt in Oklahoma city that we, uh, co-op with the ATHA for the world show. And, and, uh, uh, a gentleman by the name of Bob Kaiser and now his son, Jimmy, who have made a real business out of preparing ground for NRHA and NRCHA and NCHA events. It's, uh, it went from sort of a catch as catch can to, to, as you said, a science. And uh, it cultivated with us coming up with the funds to build the building to keep our dirt dry. Exactly. And and I think a lot of people maybe who aren't immersed in raining but listen to the podcast might not know that NRHA actually owns its own ground for the major events. And um, and that that's, I think, I think you told me it's shared with AQHA, too, for the World Show. Um, so that, that yes, ground yes. is pr a precious commodity for you guys to have. Yeah, Jennifer, I think it's still shared with AQHA. It was when, when I was on the board. And, uh, you know, as, as I said, uh, we, we built a building back back in the day. And it, it was like a, you know, a, a 
just a roof and with some sides on it to cover the dirt to make sure we had dry ground. The first year we went to Oklahoma City was in 1986, and uh, there was a wet spot in the center of the arena, and there were two barrels, you know, and uh, most most everybody was riding around the barrels on the dry sides of the arena, and uh, that that was definitely not a very good thing. And uh, I recall when I was president, Bob Kaiser was still doing quite a bit of farming in Illinois, and you know, he said he didn't know how many more years he'd be able to do the ground for the NRHA because he had to get back and either harvest or probably harvest his beans at that time of year. And, uh, you know, I, I remember standing outside the Coliseum in Oklahoma City and, you know, just begging Bob to hang on for another year or two until I got through with, with my term as president, you know. And I, I figured as long as I had the ground good when I was there, the, the rest of those guys could fend for themselves. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, thinking about that prior, uh, you know, at the Congress, Stretch Bradley used to have the tractor parked at the one end of the arena, and he and Roger used to sit there, and, and uh, they had the best seat in the house to watch the rainings. And that arena in Columbus wasn't very big, and Stretch had that little drag on the back, and he'd drag the ground every, you know, seven or eight or ten horses and park it at the right end of the uh, Coliseum and sit there and watch the rain. <laughs> Photographers want that seat now. <laughs> uh, yes. So Reining's backbone really is its objective judging system, and that system has served as a model for other equine sports because it is so solid. How have you seen that system evolve, and, and what has it shown you in terms of its competency, I guess? Well, as far as its competency, competency Jen, it, it's, it's second to none. You know, uh, when it was first put into play, uh, John Snowblin, Dick Peeper, Rick Weaver, uh, Matt Lance, several other people got behind it, along with uh, Bobby Mack. And, um, you know, when it was originally brought forward, it, it wasn't uh, received with uh, the amount of enthusiasm that it, <laughs> or, uh, that it allowed it to uh, progress as time went on. And the Olympic-style scoring system, you know, the plus half, minus half, uh, 70 denoting average was a system that was able to be uh, easily adapted by the FEI and other organizations to uh, accept reigning as the first Western discipline. And without that scoring system in place, um, I, I, I can't say we would have never achieved the international status that we did, but it certainly would have been a lot harder. And it made reigning the um, sort of the go-to sport um as an example for every other discipline, including, uh, for example, now ranch riding has, has got a subject objective judging system. And, and, uh, it, it certainly paved the way for not only NRHA, but all, all major disciplines that can be scored in, a, in, in like manner to progress. Absolutely. And I think, um, you and I have talked a little bit about, you know, it, it really does allow that the best horse to, to win. I mean, there's, you know, a little bit of room in there, but with that five judge system at the major events and, and um, dropping the high and low score, and it really does reveal the winner. Well, and, and, yeah. Yes, absolutely. Jen, it's similar to an uh, Olympic style scoring system, you know, and it's, it's very easy to, uh, it's not easy to understand how the maneuvers are evaluated because that's a little more complex, mm -hmm. but for the average individual, they can look at it at the end and say, okay, well, this is the reason that the, this horse won, you know, and it, it, it's it's totally objective, uh, not much of subjectivity to it, and it uh, denotes a clear-cut winner. Right, and also um, at that entry level, it allows the newcomer to really see where they can improve, what they need to work on, um, 
you know, and they can almost compete with themselves to improve their score each time until they're ready to compete more with the, uh, the other people in their class. And, and at that level, um, I think it, it can offer a lot of encouragement and insight when you really dig into those scores at the, when you're a beginner. Oh, Jen, absolutely. You, you know, it's probably one of the greatest tools to uh, allow people to advance at whatever level they're they're capable of, and it, it gives the trainers an opportunity to take their non-pros over, review the scoring system, look at what, they, what, what they've done well, what they might have improved upon, or, or what might not have worked, and uh, they can go home and, and, and hone their skills to uh, hopefully do better at the next event. And it, it, it just gives everybody a, a, a really great stepping stone to progress as, uh, as they move up the ranks of uh, participation at, at, in reigning. Or, or at any other event that uses the system, it's it's really a great tool if you think about it. So we have the the NRHA Derby presented by Markel coming right up. Mm-hmm. Um, the 2020 Derby saw a huge increase in entries. You know, it was obvious that people were ready to get out and and horse show. Um, that event has seen a lot of change in its history, from venues to the size of the entries to you know the ages of the horses, adding in those seven year olds. Um, could you share with us some of your memories of the evolution of the Derby? Um, it's going to be taking place June 19th through the 27th in Oklahoma City, and um, it's it's such a great event to be at, and watching those aged horses is incredible. So tell us a little bit about its roots and where you see it now. Well, the NRHA Derby started as a, started as a maturity with the Portorama uh, in uh, Toronto back in the day. Uh, the first one I attended was in the late 70s, and... Uh, to give you an example, Bob Loomis won it on a, a measure he won the Paturity on by the name of Lady El Dorado. Bill Horn was second on BH Enterprise and third on a horse that I own by the name of Gunner's Little Horn. And I thought, gosh, this is easy. You know, you buy a horse, let Bill show it, and you end up third in a major event. And uh, <laughs> little did I know. Um, and, and, and then from those humble beginnings in Toronto, and let me just add that uh, the, the participants at the Portorama in the raining had to ride at six o'clock in the morning to school their horses in a pen about half the size of the makeup arena in Oklahoma city. But it, it was the same for everybody. And, and that's what we had to adapt to at the time. And uh, we left there and then went to, went to North Carolina, you know, Raleigh was the host of the NRHA maturity for a number of years. And, um, you know, James Hunt, the governor of North Carolina was the first, first person that uh, ever had a uh, bronze trophy that was not uh, one in the arena. We gave it to him, and, or someone gave it to him. I wasn't uh, involved at the time to um, thank him for uh, allowing NRHA to have an event there or reigning to participate there, and it was called a maturity. And um, it ran its course in, in Raleigh, and fortunately we um, had an opportunity to go to um, – um, Minnesota and Sally Brown, Jim Robin, and a host of others, including McQuays and uh, the McCutcheons, uh, produced what we what, what came to be known as probably the first ever major major event that uh, had outside spectators that uh, were involved and w- was really a, a tremendous tremendous boost for the sport. It, it is interesting to see that evolution and all the places it's been. And then it found its home in Oklahoma City, where, you know, obviously the NRHA headquarters is there, the fraternity is there. Um, so it, it really has had great opportunities to spread around, you know, kind of the eastern United States and then settle in a, a pretty central location there. 
Well, that's true, Jen. And, uh, you know, uh, when it was in Minnesota, they had uh, the Minnesota Vikings participating. They had uh, the, the police department of Minnesota or Minneapolis-St. Paul uh, selling tickets. And, wow. uh, you know, I remember one. Lynn Anderson was there one year to sing the Star Spangled Banner and, and, and just a host of uh, a great, great accomplishments were, were uh, achieved at that particular uh, juncture in NRHA history. And uh, the first international reign or international cup was, was derived by Sally Brown up there, if I recall. And in, in uh, you know, 1994, uh, you know, the police department had sort of backed off a little bit uh, I want to say it was Jim McCutcheon or Bill McCutcheon that probably Bill, I think that uh, was, was in the process of retiring. And, and uh, uh, as, as things move on, we needed another place to host the Derby. So, and, and that's when we moved to Oklahoma city. Uh, Don Hoach was the president of the state fair at the time. And, and I was sitting in Youngstown, Ohio, when I found out we needed to move the Derby and I called Don on the phone and could always, He'd always been just a super, super individual, a great supporter of NRHA uh, from back in the 80s. And I, I called Don and said, Don, look, we need to find a home for our derby. And he asked what it was going to take. And uh, we discussed some numbers, and uh, we made an agreement that afternoon on the phone, and the rest is history. And we've been there ever since 1994, and I, I think it's certainly still absolutely, as you suggested, after, after the 2020 NRHA derby uh, serves the industry very well. Absolutely. And I, 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 for one, love watching those those horses that have had a couple of years in the show pen and are really hitting their stride. Those those finals can be really exciting. And um, you see just the best of the best out there. Well, that, that's a great point, Jennifer. Uh, you know, the age forces going up to seven-year-olds certainly has increased the awareness of, of, of aged events. Uh, it's been a little hard on the four-year-olds maybe to compete unless it's a really special four-year-old. Um, you know, someone told me at one time, I think it was Bill Horn, that the four-year-old year is the, the toughest year in, in the training of the horse. And, uh, you know, they're, they're not babies, but they're, they're not adults, you know. So it takes a little bit of uh, time for the four-year-olds to develop into, the, to the, into, into being what they're ultimately going to be. But the, the Derby in Oklahoma City allowed a lot of things to happen. It, 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 it uh, allowed the youth kids to participate right. at the USEF level. You know, we uh, had the first intercollegiate judging system uh, or judging program in Oklahoma City at the Derby. Um, uh, 2006 brought, brought an Italian-owned horse, uh, Master Snapper, owned by Roberto Quoggi, uh, now one of NRHA's Hall of Fame members, written by Kelly Swifel to win all the divisions. And, and that was certainly special because it, it proved that a horse could come over uh, and compete on either continent. And we had some horses, uh, you know, from NRHA uh, domestically go to go to Italy, uh, Europe, or obviously Italy's in Europe, but go to Italy, uh, other parts of Europe, uh, South America, and, and, and still be very, very competitive. And I think that the Derby has uh, given everybody an opportunity to see that happen. Absolutely. So you're you're involved with Markel, and Markel has been an NRHA mm -hmm. partner for more than 27 years. Um, yes. Can you tell us a little bit about the beginning of that relationship, how it evolved? Maybe if if there you can tell us anything about where it's going, um, but also its its growth from a U.S. based partnership to one that now encompasses European events too. Well, the reason uh, 
the reason I got involved because I was president at the time, Linda Matthews, who was our executive director, uh, came to me with a proposal from, from Martell, who was uh, going to sell equine insurance, and they needed somebody with an insurance license. So I happened to have an insurance license at the time. So that's why I got involved with a gentleman by the name of Don Faison, who was still involved with Martell. Um, we decided that after, I think it was 20-some-odd years, that uh, we had grown here domestically, uh, not only our corporate partner with NRHA, but AQHA and our CHA, uh, the Ohio Quarter Horse Association and the Congress, uh, the NSBA, uh, Martell has just been a, a – the APHA, I might add. Uh, Martell has just been a great supporter of the Western horse industry. And I felt that if we had such a, a, a strong uh, contingency in Europe that we needed to provide benefit to our European members, uh, especially with as many horses as, as, as we're moving back and forth across the pond. And Martell agreed. We, uh, through uh, several people, um, Muriel de Mowbray and Juliet Redfern, uh, we were able to uh, develop Martell in Western Europe, and we still are uh, uh, very happy about that uh, transition and very, very pleased that it's uh, being able to be continued uh, today. Where we're going in the future, you know, Jennifer, who knows, really, it's a, it's a, 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 a tremendous feeling for me to still be involved after 27 years to be able to to give back to the NRHA through Martell and, and obviously their sponsorship. And I think it's been a, a great marriage for, for both organizations, that being um, NRHA and Markel. Oh, for sure. And then um, also maybe we can talk a little bit about Markel's involvement with the fraternity sales because that's a longstanding relationship too. Well, uh, thank you, Jennifer. It is important. I think it's important not only to the, the consigners but also to the, the buyers there. And uh, it gives an opportunity for everybody to feel that there is at least somewhat uh, – some protection for a 24-hour period after those sales end until the, the buyers can uh, catch up with their respective insurance agents and secure coverage on their, their purchases. And it uh, gives the seller some confidence that at least if anything uh, out of the ordinary happens in that 24-hour period, that uh, everybody's protected. And unfortunately, uh, we haven't had any major, major catastrophes, but there have been some minor situations that uh, kind of left everybody a little bit in the lurch, but uh, they were easily resolved and everybody left on a, on a good note. When horses are involved, it seems like those situations are always possible, right? <laughs> oh, for sure. For sure. You, you know, you just, you know, I, 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 unfortunately, as, as I told somebody the other day, they don't know what they're, what they cost or how they're bred, you know? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, um, our last kind of comparative question, I wanted to talk to you about um, the purse for the fraternity winner, the open fraternity winner. And, um, you know, you've been there for the big changes. Um, just this last year, the task force increased the purse to a whopping $250,000. And then this year, it was just announced that that's jumping to $350,000. So how were the circumstances in those big jumps in the purse? Um you know, when it went up to 200,000 and, and then on up, how, how are those similar or different? Um, I know it takes a, a huge effort on the part of people who are really involved and want to make it happen. Um, tell us about those circumstances and how we get to $350,000 now. 
Well, let's start with the 250. Mm -hmm. That was a, uh, a dream of, of the late Doug Carpenter and myself, along with Rick Clark. Uh, we had been paying 100000 since 1983. In 1983, 100000 was a lot of money. Absolutely. Uh, NRHA really didn't have the uh, resources. We didn't have the sponsorship. We didn't have the membership that was in Columbus, Ohio, when it was basic, basically uh, thought of as an East Coast, East Coast organization. With the expansion of Oklahoma City, we were able to then become a domestic organization and, and encourage participation from the West Coast, uh, Arizona, uh, you know, the whole country was involved, as was Canada. Um, but it was still basically a, a northern hemisphere uh, operation, you know, and, and, and 100,000 since 1983 when it was a lot of money. Um, let's face it, now in 2019 or 20, that, that, that number was nowhere near as significant. And Doug Carpenter and myself just felt to really allow reigning to uh, step outside the box, take another leap of faith. We needed to add money to that that, that first place paycheck. Um, horses were selling at an incredible rate for what we thought were uh, great, uh, large amounts of dollars, and it just didn't make sense to have have prospects bringing more than what they were able to win in the three year old year. So Doug Carpenter and I, along with the support of the board, um, as it came to being, felt that. Uh, we had a, a, a good plan for going forward. The executive board with the leadership of Rick, Mike Hancock, uh, Gary Carpenter, and John Tagg in particular um, expanded that. We paid 250000 last year, even in the pandemic. And, and, you know, we brought this up at the winter meeting in, in early February of last year. And who would have thought that uh, we were going to undergo what we went through for the, for the balance of 2020? not even being sure if we were going to have a derby and a fraternity mm -hmm. last year. Um, and it was, you know, kind of on a day-to-day -day or a week-to-week -week basis. And, and, you know, I have to commend everybody in NRHA for the stick to that they um, showed because, you know, it had been very easy to say, hey, look, this is a great idea, but we're going to wait until next year. And, 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 and you know, um, it, it's easy to put off a major step like that. But uh, even through the pandemic, everybody held strong. And it, it, it's taken a new wave, and there, there are more supporters this year, even than last year, as it's been more publicized. And that allowed the fraternity uh, task force or the people involved to, to raise another 100000 for for the winner. And is it a lot of money? Yes. Should it have been divided into the lower places? Maybe. But when you have private donations funding it, you cannot tell some people where they're going to put their money. Um, and I think that. Stepping up to 350 is going to entice even more people to participate at that top level and hopefully allow more growth uh, for the future of NRHA. You know, and I remember back in the day, you know, Jen, it, it wasn't always uh, as, I don't want to say as profitable or easy or, you know, when we first moved to Oklahoma City in 1986, we all had very similar stall curtains. They were all uh, this queen, which was left over from the world show. Mm -hmm. You know, when you walk around the, the event today and it's just it's just mind boggling with the, the participation and the setups and the, the training. And it, it just uh, it, it's almost like two different events. And I remember walking through the arena one day when Dale Wilkinson was sitting, sitting where he always sat there in the one corner. And 
Matthew looked up at me and he said, well, Frank, he said, this is a fine mess we're created, isn't it? And it, was, <laughs> it was, you know, that was Dale's, uh, that was Dale's analogy, you know, and nobody could probably be more concise than Dale Wilkinson in describing the situation, you know? <laughs> well, um, thank you for sharing all those great memories about, um, how NRHA has come along and, and why we've seen some of the changes that we've seen and, and what maybe the, the history is behind them. I think that's really important for, for people to know, but I'd also like people to get to know you a little bit better. Um, you've been a horseman your entire life. Um, but how did reining become your focus and what attracted you to the sport and made you stay and get so deeply involved and really dedicate a lot of your life to the sport? Well, I got involved because of a, of a friend of mine that was a horse trainer, trader in, in, in Northeast Ohio, a gentleman by the name of Bob Julian. And, uh, you know, Western Pleasure, which we tried to participate in, and Halder just required not much excitement. And uh, so I, I bought, a, bought a mare back in the day. Her name was Miss Bubble Bar. And um, I didn't get to the 66 maturity, but Miss Bubble Bar did. And uh, she was the first reigning horse that I was, was able to buy and. She was trained by a, a guy by the name of Danny Train, who still, I think, participates in Northeast Ohio here and does a great job. And, and she was the first reigning horse that I was able to purchase. And I think I was around 15 or 16 when I got her. Prior to that, I you know, did the pony thing, the 4-H uh, programs and, and so on and so forth. But Miss Bubble Bar was the first reigning horse that, that I bought. And she was actually uh, in the 66 maturity. And uh, the next horse was... Uh, a mare called Rascal Lou that I was third on at the amateur at the Congress. And uh, that's where I met Bill Horn. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, I uh, was able to purchase a gilding by the name of Gunner's Little Horn. And uh, the rest is kind of history, as they say. But uh, the beginnings were rather sh uh, a little shaky. Uh, I had a horse that, uh, you know, there was, there was another gunner before there was the, the ultimate Colonel Smoking Gun. He was a, a stud by the name of Hollywood Smoke that Earl Cox owned in Middletown, Ohio. Okay. And uh, his his nickname was Gunner. And I purchased one of his babies from Bill Horn, a horse called Gunner's Rambo. And, you know, I was getting all prepared to show in the uh, non-pro fraternity at the Congress. And um, we didn't have as many preparatory events to go to today to get the horse season. So, like, that was our first four in the show pen. It was uh, – it was at the Congress in the um, NRHA non-pro fraternity. And we had a run-in pattern where you ran in and stopped and you did two and a half spins to the to the right, and then you ran back to the other end and did two and a half to the left. And I ran down through the pen, and, and he was always a little sticky to the right. So uh, we called this horse Harry because of his mane and tail. <laughs> And he was a just a, a really good stopper for back in the day. So he started stopping, and boy, he just took the ground. And I got that first turnaround, and all of a sudden, I heard something pop. And oh, no. <laughs> uh, you know, everybody was yelling, "Whoa, whoa, whoa!" I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. "What do you mean, whoa? I'm, I'm, I'm going. You know, I'm going to the other end. This is all downhill from here. You know." So, <laughs> unbeknownst to me, my cinch popped. Oh, the, no. the latigo on the right side of the saddle broke, and. Uh, Harry was kind of smooth, so the saddle was still in place, and we loped to the far end of the gallop to the far end of the arena, and Harry went to start stopping again, and I went right over his head. Oh, no. And uh, that, that was uh, my first foray in an NRHA event. You just <laughs> say it wasn't very successful. And you're still and, here uh, anyway. <laughs> yeah, it's still uh, – <laughs> and uh, a, 
an old friend of mine, a guy by the name of Mario Beaujolais, was telling the story about it was his first fraternity after that, or at that time also, and he he was trotting around out in the makeup pen to get warmed up for the little area outside. It wasn't really a makeup pen. It was just what area we had to ride around outside Coliseum of Columbus. And he said, you know, he said, I watched this guy going in front of me, and he said, gosh, he said, I knew it was going to be tough, but this guy came out carrying a saddle and leading his horse. He said, I can't figure out what happened to him. I looked at him, and I told him, you know, Mario, I said, that was me. And, uh, you know, it, uh, fortunately, it, uh, it, it progressed to a little bit better situation than that, you know. And you think back of all the things that have happened and the great things that I've been able to be involved in and the people that I've met along the way and, uh, you know, the, the reigning horse industry and the Western the Western horse industry or the Western disciplines have certainly certainly been a huge, huge part of my life, my family's life, and, uh, you know, we're, we're really glad to play what whatever, either small or large, or, you know, it doesn't seem like a very big role, but uh, it's certainly been very rewarding for all of us absolutely now with playing a role in the sport you have been inducted into the nrha hall of fame what does being a member of that hall of fame mean to you and um how does an entity like the reigning horse foundation which manages the hall of fame uh, make nrha stand out from other associations well you know our foundation has been um this is its 20th year, and back when we started it, we needed a place to allow people to make donations that were um, on a tax-favorable basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, the foundation really came into play, and you know, and I'll mention one other thing. You know, we had the brick campaign back at the old office, and mm-hmm. uh, we donated horses that were auctioned off for the NRHYA, and that's been a part of the program and, and a very successful part of the program, I might add. And, um, you know, in 2010, we were able to secure funding actually in 2009 that we used and the foundation stepped up and it, it allowed rain to be, um, broadcast on NBC at the world equestrian games. And I think that was a huge step in wow. the promotion of, of our sport. Um, but the foundation was able to allow those monies to be set in a separate fund to be used for a specific purpose. And that certainly uh, brought credibility to the foundation. It allowed it to be uh, well publicized. And I think where it's going today is even, you know, uh, more incredible with the leadership of Mark Blake, Tim Anderson, uh, the crisis fund that uh, Tracy Lynch started back in the day. Um, Everything that was done uh, is even grown to uh, greater heights. Uh, it's grown exponentially to what we originally thought. And uh, people like Anne Marie Burns, Bill Bradley, the late Bill Bradley, were instrumental in the, the progress of the foundation. Uh, but you asked me about the Hall of Fame. And, and uh, uh, let me just say this there are two trophies that I know where they are almost every time since I've received them. And one of them is the trophy that was won by Spirit of Five and Bill Horn in 1987, that being the fraternity winner that I had the privilege of owning. And the second is my Hall of Fame trophy. Um, I can tell you where those trophies are almost at any time. And so uh, that, that kind of sums up what they both mean to me. Well, um, the NRHA's Respect the Horse, Respect the Sport platform, it continues to be something that we're putting out there. Um, it's it's gaining traction and, and notoriety. Um, 
what changes have you seen like in our modern care, the way that we handle our horses, the way we train and show them that supports this stance? And um, why do you think it's important? Well, it's just been a natural progression, Jennifer. Um, you know, in 1986 at Bill Horn's Christmas party, he had three fraternity horses. Two of them were not even bred to be reiners. Mm-hmm. Uh, today, that that that's just you know that's a thing of the past. People could, wouldn't even believe that. You know, I, I tell people, well, that's before the Civil War. You know, but uh, <laughs> today, you know, today our horses our equine athletes and the people that train them, um, you know, are better bred, better conditioned, better cared for, have better veterinary practices. I won't say better veterinarians, um, but, but state of the art, uh, facilities, you know, back in the day, you know, when, 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 when we were breaking two-year-olds or Bill was breaking two-year-olds, you know, we'd just get on them and gallop them through his hayfield, you know, and, Today that that's almost uh, you know unheard of. They're they're just so better conditioned and better better fed. You know it's it, it, it's a total evolution of not only the reining horse industry but almost of all um, uh, disciplines. You know the horses are just just so much better athletes and they're they're bred for a specific purpose and that's to be a reining horse. Um, and and I think it's just uh, really gratifying when you walk through a a field of, uh, of yearlings or babies with on their mothers and see the horses and how they've progressed over the last 35 or 40 years. For sure. And it really is. Um, I think you, you get out what you put in and, um, when those horses are cared for well and trained correctly and brought up, right. Then that's when you get the, the, the superstars, I think that really start to represent the, the sport as a whole at every level. Um, it, it really is you get you uh get what you put into it well certainly i mean back in the day you know some some you know obviously uh bob loomis for example came from the hunter jumper world or was was riding uh hunters at one time you know when greg darnell was was riding hunter jumpers uh you know they they all came from a different background you know bill horn never rode a horse until he was 23 you know, you, you look at the young people today coming from across the pond, uh, you know, from South America, Europe, and, and, and uh, you know, they've had more of a background and they start younger and, uh, you know, they, they care, take care of themselves a little bit better than we did back in the day. And, and uh, you know, the whole thing from the trainer to the horse to the, to the amount of care given by the uh, assistant trainers, the grooms, you, you, you know, it's, it's all the other influences that have affected uh, our business that allowed it to progress to where it is today. Um, you know, people are just uh, just totally engulfed in the business side of things, and um, you, you know, it, it, it's really uh, it, it's great to still be able to be a part of it. Well, we know you'll be a part of it for a long time to come too, and um, <laughs> we appreciate your your time on the podcast, and look forward to seeing you at the Derby, hopefully, and. We'll, we'll, I'm sure it'll be a, a wonderful event and um, we wish you all the best and thanks again well Jennifer thank you and yeah we'll certainly be at the Derby and hope to see you there and uh, can't wait to uh, get at it in Oklahoma City again next month thanks Frank both from an NRHA standpoint and Mark Kells you know it's just uh, it's, uh, it, it's always good to get to an event where there are so many great people and great horses absolutely well we'll look forward to seeing you there
Thank you very much. And I appreciate your time today. Hey, thanks for listening to In Our Tracks, a project from the National Reining Horse Association. For more about reining and NRHA, visit NRHA.com and follow NRHA on Facebook at NRHA National Reining Horse Association and on Instagram at NRHA Reining. Please be sure to leave us a review. We love five stars and um, look for us next month.